0: Last time, we spoke about the invasion of the Treasury Islands. The time had finally come to begin operations against Bougainville, but in order to do so, the Allies had a few tricks up their sleeve. In order to make sure the landings at Cape Torakina at Empress Augusta Bay went safely, the Allies would perform raids against Choiseul in the Treasury Islands. It was hoped such actions would work as a diversion and confuse the Japanese as to where the real operations were aimed. The landing on Mono saw some New Zealanders and Americans annihilate a 200-strong Japanese garrison. On Choiseul, paratroopers boldly raided a force six times larger than them. The raid was a success, and thanks to John F. Kennedy, the paratroopers were grabbed off the island just before the Japanese could obliterate them. In the end, the landings at Cape Torakina would be a success, and now a battle would be unleashed. This episode is The Battle of Empress Augusta Bay. Welcome back to the Pacific War week by week podcast and every Tuesday full post three But Before we begin, I just want to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com/kings and Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast, Over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all of that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I'm about to release a documentary on Medals of Honor Earned during the Battle for Guadalcanal. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash Channel for more exclusive podcasts. So last time we covered the planning behind Operation Cherry Blossom, i.e. the landings at Cape Torakina, As a means of confusing the enemy, the Allies also chose to invade the Treasury Islands and they raided Choisel. With Operation Cherry Blossom in full swing, so begins the Bougainville Campaign, which we are about to be diving into. At the end of October, after successfully invading the Treasury Islands, and the extremely bold attack upon Choisel, where the paratroopers were outnumbered 6-1, to one, Combined with General Kenney's 5th Air Force and aerosols neutralizing Rabaul and nearly every airfield on Bougainville, the landings at Cape Torrequena were finally launched. In a final act to aid Operation Cherry Blossom, Admiral Sherman's Task Force 38 departed Espiritu de Santo on October 28, and Admiral Merrill's Task Force did the same from Florida Island on November 1. They hoped to rendezvous near the Buka Passage three days later so they could prepare an attack against the Buca and Bonus airfields. During the morning of November the 1st, Admiral Merrill's cruisers arrived to their station and began firing upon the airfields. Then Sherman's carriers arrived off Buca Passage to launch two separate airstrikes. The first airstrike consisted of 18 fighters, 15 dive bombers and eleven torpedo bombers that hit Buka just after daylight. The second consisted of 14 fighters, 21 dive bombers, and 11 torpedo bombers that hit Buka again at mid-morning. The airstrikes managed to shoot up a number of small ships within the harbor. Meanwhile, after firing 2,705- and 6-inch shells all over Buka and Boris's airfields, Merrill's Task Force 39 departed the shortlands to bombard Poporang, Balelo, and Fazi. November November 2nd, Sherman performed airstrikes against Bucamorce's fields before departing south for Guadalcanal. Within those two days, the Americans estimated they had destroyed around 30 aircraft and several small ships at the cost of 11 aircraft lost. The attacks had rendered the two Japanese airfields closest to Empress Augusta Bay basically unusable for when the landings would be made. The Japanese were now convinced that any invasion of Bungayville would have to be countered with all the aircraft and ships available within the Southern Theater. Yet they could not concentrate their entire naval and air forces against the Solomons, because the American and Australian forces on New Guinea would most likely be performing a landing on New Britain at any moment. Admiral Koga also expected the Americans to attempt a landing in the Gilberts or Marshalls. Thus, the two-pronged Allied strategy was serving to freeze the Japanese army units within the New Guinea and Solomon areas. Meanwhile, Admiral Wilkinson's Task Force 31 were making final preparations for the transport of the 3rd Marine Division. The amphibious assault would be facing a landing area defended by roughly 270 men. Once they overcame them, a defensive perimeter would have to be hastily made because it was certain the Japanese commander on Bougainville would hammer them hard. General Vandergrift's plan was to land the 3rd and 9th Marine Regiments of Col. George McHenry and Col. Edward Craig and the 2nd Raider Battalion of Lt. Col. Joseph McCaffrey, abreast on 11 designated beaches covering a distance of 8,000 or so yards. The 3rd Raider Battalion, led by Lt. Col. Fred Beans, would land at the same time on Parada Island to overcome an estimated 70 Japanese defenders there. Wilkinson wanted to land the forces abreast as quickly as possible and to have the transports unload the supplies off the bay by nightfall because he expected a rapid Japanese response, similar to what had occurred on Savo Island. On October the 28th, General Turnage's men departed the new hybrids in 20 combat transports and cargo ships commanded by Commodore Lawrence Reifschneider. The convoy proceeded using different routes, hoping to prevent the Japanese from discovering the size of their force. The three transport divisions would rendezvous with Wilkinson's destroyers by October the thirty-first. Once linked up, they would approach Bougainville under the cover of naval PBYS and Liberators. During the morning of November the first, minesweepers led by the destroyer Wadsworth were sent to clear mines from the landing areas and to determine how dangerous the shoals were. The minesweepers found no mines, but they did find plenty of uncharted shoals. Wadsworth's radar confirmed that Cape Torokina's position within their naval charts was quite misplaced. Wadsworth had a number of tasks ahead of her. In addition to helping with the fire support at a range of around 3,000 yards, she was to use her radar to confirm the actual location of Cape Torokina, Prada Island, and the landing beaches. The coast of Bougainville had been chartered by the German Admiralty in 1890. The Germans had placed Cape Torokina and Mutapina Point around 9 miles southwest of their actual locations. Thankfully, the submarine USS Guardfish reported that the Air Force and Naval charts had misplaced Cape Torakina by around 7 miles, and this is why Wadsworth was sent to investigate. Again, it is the unsexy logistical stuff, but it's gravely important, as you don't want to waste any time during an amphibious landing searching for a lost beach. Wilkerson decided not to land the men until after daylight, when it was possible to detect the offshore shoals. Shortly before sunrise, the minesweepers and destroyers began their bombardment. The Sigourney and Wadsworth fired at ranges of 13,000 yards upon Parada Island, while the Terry bombarded closer to the shore of Cape Torakina. As each transport passed the Cape, they fired three-inch anti-aircraft guns hoping to hit Japanese positions or at least minimize their artillery. By 6.45 a.m., the transports began arriving off the beaches around 3,000 yards from the shore. At 7.10 a.m., the LCVPs began taking men ashore. Simultaneously, Wilkinson's destroyers began to systematically bombard the perimeter while 31 bombers from New Georgia bombed and strafed the landing areas. Within a few minutes, around 7,500 troops, roughly half of the total force, were scrambling ashore and unloading with great speed and smoothness. The preliminary bombardment had failed, however, to smash the well-concealed Japanese machine-gun nests located on the southern beaches. These machine-gun nests unleashed their lead upon the landing craft. The landing craft, bearing a third of the force, had immediately come under fire from Pareto Island and some pillboxes on Cape Torakina. The third raiders in particular were hit by machine-gun fire from Pareto Island. Around four landing craft were sunk from this, 10 others were badly damaged, and over 70 men would be lost in the process. The 9th marines landed themselves on five beaches to the north, and they were lucky to find little resistance from the Japanese. Once ashore, they sorted themselves out quickly and began to move inland to discover the terrain was a nightmare. The beaches there led straight into some impassable swampland. Nevertheless, Where there was a will, there was a way, and the Marines began using fallen logs and debris to traverse the swamp until they came across some solid ground. By mid-morning, they would establish a narrow perimeter and began patrolling the greater area. They would establish a strong outpost on the Laruma River by 1 p.m. The boat crews were experiencing a lot of issues with the high surf, combined with a lack of experience amongst them. Some of the LCVPs found themselves smashing into another, some dropped their men in deep water, some did not lower their ramps properly, and the Marines were forced to toss themselves over the sides into waist deep water. More than 30 landing craft were wrecked during the initial phase of the operation. Around 64 LZVPs and 22 LCMs were beached, many with damage beyond repair. The 3rd Marines and 2nd Raiders would have a hell of a time landing. The 3rd Marines landed south of the Koromikina River. They had no issues with shoals nor the high surf, but they had landed directly in front of the main Japanese defenses. There were roughly 300 Japanese there, but they did not have a permanent defense along the beaches of Yellow 2, Blue 2, and Blue 3. As the 3rd Marines landed, they began fighting with some Japanese, killing many and sending them fleeing into the jungle. Patrols were quickly organized, who worked alongside the 2nd Raiders to fan out. The raiders, upon landing, found tougher resistance in the form of a reinforced platoon operating out of two bunkers and trenches located 30 yards inland. Once the raiders had blasted out the bunkers, the remaining Japanese began to retreat into the jungle. Like the 9th Marines, they would find swamplands ahead of Yellow Beach 1, making it difficult to advance. By mid-morning, the raiders reached the Bertone Mission Trail. The main Japanese resistance hit the men who landed at Blue 1 just adjacent to Cape Torekina. There, the Japanese had constructed 25 large and small log and earthen pillboxes around the perimeter of the cape. There were trenches connecting the pillboxes, some of the larger pillboxes measuring 6 feet by 6 feet, containing 75mm field guns. Each pillbox was covered by earth and camouflaged using jungle plants. Only three pillboxes had been hit by the naval and aerial bombardments prior to the landings. When the Americans hit the beaches in the area, they immediately were forced to charge into the enemy bunkers. The Japanese 75mm gun at Cape Torakina caused havoc upon the attackers. It was very well placed in a log and sand bunker, and its approaches were protected by two smaller bunkers with a series of trenches manned by numerous Japanese. Sergeant Robert Owens of A Company, 3rd Marines, grabbed four Marines and charged the two small bunkers directly upon the mouths of some machine guns. The Marines entered an emplacement through a fireport, and they drove the gun crews out. The surrounding trenches concentrated their fire on the brave Marines. Sergeant Owens would be found later dead, riddled with bullets. He was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for the action. Lieutenant Colonel Joseph McCaffrey was immediately mortally struck four times in the chest as he led the Marines forward, and he was to be replaced temporarily by Major Alan Shapley for the Second Raiders. Despite the tremendous losses, the Americans cleared the Japanese positions and pushed further inland to pursue and kill the fleeing defenders. It is worthy to mention over 24 Doberman Pinchers, the official dog of the United States Marine Corps between 1943 and 1945, from the 1st Marine Dog Platoon proved invaluable during this point of the battle. The dogs were able to point out hidden snipers concealed in the underbrush. Five hundred and forty-nine war dogs would return from the war with only four not being able to return to civilian life. They were all very good boys. The third raiders landed on Peruta Island and nearly all of their boats were shot at. But it was mostly small machine gun fire and did little to no damage. The Japanese had three or four deep, well sandbagged emplacements on the seaward side where their machine gun nests fired upon the raiders. It took the raiders two hours upon landing to secure their beachhead around 125 yards inland. Beans committed his reserves early in the afternoon, supported by some 75mm guns borrowed from the 9th Marines. They moved halfway across the island, encountering sporadic Japanese sniper fire. The Japanese were outnumbered. By 3.30pm, their resistance all but ended. The Marines suffered five deaths and 32 wounded, Around 29 Japanese would be found. The estimated another 70 Japanese probably escaped back to Bougainville. Soon after all of the landing craft began to pull out, the Japanese began launching airstrikes. For around two hours, the transports and supply ships were zigzagging for their lives to evade dive bombers and fighters coming out of Rabaul. The first airstrike consisted of nine VALs and 44 Zeros hit at around 7.35 a.m., almost immediately after the landings were made. General Twinning's eight Kitty Hawks and eight P-38s managed to fight them off, downing seven Japanese aircraft. The Wadsworth received a near miss during the battle. Ten minutes later, Air Souls beat off another attack, taking down another eight Japanese aircraft. During the last attack, roughly 70 Japanese aircraft came in at around 1 p.m., and they were met by 34 Air Soul fighters. After all three attacks, the Japanese had thus used around 120 aircraft and lost 26, inflicting no serious damage to the Allied ships nor the Marines ashore. But the air attacks did result in major delays for the unloading of supplies for some hours. To try and speed up the unloading process, Wilkinson stripped some men from the assault units to help unload cargo ashore. Additionally, Wilkinson employed a method of light combat loading, It would take some days for the beaches to be fully sorted out, while the naval forces departed Empress Augusta Bay before nightfall to return back to Guadalcanal. And so, 14,000 men and 6,200 tons of supplies had been successfully placed ashore in just eight hours. By the end of the first day, the Marines had contested a one-third sector and reached their initial objectives, digging in uncomfortably for the night under torrential rain. The divisional perimeter was established by forward landing teams who had very little to work with for maps. To the extreme left of the perimeter would be Company G of the 9th Marines, who were in a vulnerable spot along the Aruma River. Luckily for them, the Japanese were quite disorganized and many were located southeast of Cape Torakina. At dusk there was only sporadic sniper fire directed at the one third in the vicinity of the Cape plantation and later an attack was made against the second raiders at a roadblock they established along Mission Trail. General Turnage was now the official owner of a new lodgment on Bougainville. Generals Imamura and Hayakatake were quite slow to react to the landings. They sent the Iwaza Detachment, led by Major General Iwaza Shun, commanding the 6th Infantry Group. Backing him up would be the 1st and 3rd Battalions of the 23rd Regiment. Their first task was to hit the new enemy beachhead. As predicted by the Allies, Admiral Kuzaka and Semajima mustered every naval and aerial strength they had to try and smash the invaders. As part of Operation RO, Admiral Koga had sent over 250 aircraft from the five carriers of Admiral Ozawa's air fleet. Koga specifically stated the bulk of these were only going to be loaned for a short time. Obviously, they would have to return to the main fleet. Well, the invasion of Bougainville certainly upset the plans. The planes would not be coming back on schedule, that was for sure. As Admiral Fukudome Shigure, Kogi's chief of staff, would later note, Although the planes were not originally to be used in such offensive operations, we could not just stand by and not employ them. By midday on October the 31st, the Japanese had discovered the American task force that had departed Guadalcanal en route for Bougainville. The IJN was determined to interrupt the operation. Kuzaka sent a cruiser destroyer task force led by Vice Admiral Omari Santaro. Departing Rabaul, Omari had two heavy cruisers, Miyoko and Hakiro, two light cruisers, Sendai and Nagara, and two destroyers. Now, Omari was the commander of Cruiser Division 5 of the Combined Fleet, not that of the 8th Fleet. He just happened to be at Rabaul, covering the movement of the 17th Division at the time. He was given command of his division and the main strength of the 8th Fleet. Omari sailed out at 3 p.m. in the direction of the Shortland Islands, believing that to be the Allied target. Poor weather hindered his force, and his search planes failed to locate any Allied ships. Thus, by 9 a.m. on November the 1st, he was on his way back to Rabaul. Yet, right as his ships were turning around, suddenly they received reports that the Americans had just hit the beaches of Cape Tortiquina. Omari was quickly reinforced with a destroyer squadron and a destroyer transport group consisting of the Amargiri, Fumizuki, Uzuki, Yunagi, and Minazuki, each carrying 200 troops of a 1,000 special-trained raider group of the 17th Division. This was the 2nd Mobile Raiding Units from the 2nd Battalion, 54th Regiment led by Major Miwa Mitsuhiro. They were going to perform a counter-landing against the Marines at Mutupino Point near the village of Toroko, due south of the Marine beachhead. Within six hours, Omari departed once again to hit the enemy fleet, but he lacked a real battle plan. At 6.30 p.m., Omori rendezvoused with the transports at St. George Channel, and together they proceeded towards Bougainville. At 7.20, the convoy was spotted by an American bomber who dropped a bomb nearly hitting the Sendai. Based on this, Omori knew the Americans knew he was coming, so he concluded a counter-landing was far too dangerous. Instead, he decided to send the slower destroyer transports back over to Rabaul. Omori believed the enemy transports were still in Empress Augusta Bay. Thus, if he could sneak in and destroy them, the marines would be stuck on the island without much hope of their supplies or that of a quick rescue. Meanwhile, Merrill's task force, 39, had retired to the vicinity of Vela La but soon received news of Omari's incoming convoy. Halsey had to order his only naval force in the area to go out once again to protect the beachhead and intercept the enemy. Merrill's crews had been at it for almost 24 hours by this point, and they were quite exhausted. Now, Merrill's force went out very cautiously because they were well aware the Japanese would be outgunning them, and of course, the IGN held the dreaded long lance torpedoes. Thus, Merrill chose to detach his destroyers who would go out in front to see if they could intercept Omadi's forces before the long lances could be even put into play. He intended to take the fight to the west of Empress Augusta Bay, where he could block the enemy from the beachhead. He had his leading destroyers three miles ahead and deployed his forces along a north-south axis, with the cruisers in the center maintaining a range of 19,000 yards or more from the deadly IGN destroyers and their feared long lances. His plan was to exploit the offensive capabilities of his destroyers by letting them unleash their attacks before he would have his cruisers unleash their six-inch guns. He hoped his destroyers would be able to sneak into range and hit the Japanese destroyers before they could launch their torpedo salvos. Omari was at a disadvantage intelligence-wise. He had no idea about Merrill's force's whereabouts. Moreover, he had to rely on spotter planes because he was forewarned their radar would give away their location to the enemy if used. As Omari would later tell interrogators, We had some modified aircraft radar sets in action, but they were unreliable. I do not know whether the sets or operators were poor, but I did not have confidence in them. Thus, he had no idea of the position or size of the American flotilla. Still, he believed the enemy transports were in the bay, though in reality they would actually be nearly 40 miles to the south. Omari, still lacking any real battle plan, arrayed his forces in three columns, with his two heavy cruisers, Miyoko and Hagero, in the center. Ijun's screen of light cruisers, Sendai, and destroyers, Shiratsuyu, Samidare, and Shigure to the left, and rear admiral, Osugi Murikazu's screen of light cruiser, Agano, and the destroyers, Wakatsuki, Hatsukaze, and Naganami. As the Japanese approached the area, Task Force 39 were sailing 20 miles west of the beachhead. Merrill's flagship multiplier was the first to make radar contact with the enemy at two hundred thirty on november the second. Omani’s fleet was thirty five thousand nine hundred yards out. Merrill changed his course to head due north and then reversed to go south with his cruisers to find a favorable position to try and cross Omari's T. Merrill sent Commander Bernard Austin's destroyers out to hit the Japanese southern flank, while Captain Burke was ordered to take an interception course that would force the Japanese to be in a vulnerable position for the destroyers to launch torpedoes into their left flank. At 2.45 a.m., a Japanese aircraft finally spotted the Americans and began to drop flares over them, and this allowed the light cruiser Sendai to lead the northern column over. However, by this point, it was all but too late for the Japanese. Burke had closed in their left flank and launched 25 torpedoes at Ijun's column. After launching the torpedoes, Burke had his ships separate and it would be an hour before they could all be gathered again to form a full circle and return to their firing positions. The battle would be very chaotic. The U.S. destroyers experienced a very hard time trying to maintain contact with each other and several times they would fire upon each other by accident. All 25 torpedoes would miss because Omari ordered his ships to make a hard right turn. At 2.50, the Samidari launched a full salvo of eight torpedoes which missed their main targets, but a single torpedo managed to hit the destroyer USS Foot, blowing up a large part of her stern. Cruiser Cleveland and destroyer Spence would accidentally run into each other doing some light damage, trying to avoid the damaged foot. Merrill could no longer wait for the results of the destroyer attacks, and he ordered his cruisers to begin opening fire at 2.50 a.m. Merrill's cruisers would unleash a continuous fire using their six-inch guns while maintaining a coordinated figure-eight pattern to confuse the enemy and avoid torpedoes. The tactic had been very well rehearsed, and the commanders were perfectly in tune with another. James Fay, a sailor aboard Merrill's flagship multiplier, described the long night illuminated by lightning, flares, star shells, and muzzle flashes. The big 8-inch salvos, throwing up great geysers of water, were hitting very close to us. Our force-fired star shells in front of the Jap warships so that our destroyers could attack with torpedoes. It was like putting a bright light in front of your eyes in the dark. It was impossible to see. The noise from our guns was deafening. The Sendai was the first to be hit, taking a 6-inch shell to a rudder before it exploded near her boiler rooms. Sendai experienced a series of explosions and quickly sank. The destroyer Samidari and Shiratsuyu, behind the Sendai, collided with another trying to evade the naval gunfire, and they wound up taking positions around the stricken Sendai, already sinking by this point. Merrill then shifted his focus to the other two Japanese columns, forcing Osugi's column to head west, running across Omari's cruisers. The Hatsukaze tried to move between two heavy cruisers and collided with Omari's flagship, Miyoko at 307. Atsukaze was so crippled by the collision, she was much easier to hit as a result. She was found by Burke's reformed 45th Destroyer Division by 5.30 a.m., and five of the destroyers proceeded to batter her with shells until she would sink at 5.40. The Miyoko, meanwhile, was hit by six-inch shells, but fortunately for her, four of them were duds, not causing enough damage to slow down the flagship. Next, the USS Spence and Thatcher ran into each other, but were able to carry on the fight. Both sides were having a lot of trouble running into another during this battle. Merrill's cruisers, performing the eight-pattern at high speed, allowed them to evade most of the gunfire, however. At 3.20, Omeny opened fire with his heavy armament, both torpedoes and naval gunfire, from his cruisers. The torpedoes missed, but three dud shells hit Denver into her forward section, causing water to slow the ship down some. The other cruisers were forced to slow their speed to match her. Light cruisers, Columbia received an 8-inch shell hit. Luckily, it also failed to explode. The Japanese fire was becoming heavier and more accurate, forcing Merrill to respond with a smoke screen in front of his cruisers. Merrill made sure to keep his distance from the Japanese. When the range closed in at around 13,000 yards at 3.26 a.m., he ordered a 180-degree turn to the north. The radical maneuvering by Merrill's cruisers made it extremely difficult to accurately fire upon them but also for Merrill's cruisers to hit Omari's. At 3.30 a.m., Omari decided to retire in the mistaken belief that his long lances had sunk or heavily damaged Merrill's cruisers. Omari had received a false report claiming, One torpedo hit on leading U.S. cruiser. Two torpedo hits on second U.S. cruiser. Two torpedo hits on third U.S. cruiser. Shellfire also reported on U.S. force. In the meantime, Burke's destroyers had re-entered the fray of battle and began firing upon the doomed Sendai. Afterwards, they pursued the Shiratsuyo and Samedare, but both destroyers got extremely lucky when Commander Austin confused Burke into believing that the ship he saw turning northwards was actually the Spence. By 4am, the Sendai was sinking, taking with her 185 crew. Ijun and 311 other survivors would later be rescued on November 3rd by the submarine RO-104. The Hatsukaze would later on be sunk at 5.40 a.m. As dawn was breaking, Merrill urgently called for all available fighters to come to his aid, as he expected the Japanese to toss the kitchen sink of Air Force's atom. Just before 8 a.m., a formation of 80 Zeros and 18 dive bombers arrived and began attacking his cruisers desperately performing anti-aircraft maneuvers. The Allied aircraft were delayed by bad weather, resulting in only 8 Hellcats, 1 Marine Corsair, 3 P-38s, and four New Zealander P-40s showing up. The Allied pilots would claim to down 16 Japanese aircraft, though in reality it would only be eight. Merrill's forces performing a defensive circular cordon would claim to down 17 further Japanese aircraft. The Japanese managed two hits, one causing minor damage to the USS Multiplier. The Japanese had lost their chance to stop the invasion of Bougainville, Merrill's handling of the battle, particularly his figure-eight maneuver, had negated the dreaded superweapon of the enemy, the Type 93 Long Lance Torpedo. It was to be the last major surface engagement of the Solomons area. Halsey would later reflect on the Japanese attempt to hit the landing forces at Cape Torakina. It was the most desperate emergency that confronted me in my entire term as the Komsa Pak. Commodore Reichsneider was ordered to bring his transports back to Cape Torakina to resume the unloading. The unloading of the cargo would be completed by 3 p.m. Vice-Admiral Omari's force withdrew back to Rabaul. It was soon to be joined by four more cruisers and a number of destroyers coming from Truk. The reluctant Admiral Koga, according to Admiral Fukedome, decided to commit some of his very best units from the undamaged 2nd Fleet to cooperate with the carrier-based planes, which had been sent from Vice Admiral Ozawa's fleet, in order to check the U.S. Bougainville operations. Seven heavy cruisers, the Takio, Maya, Otago, Suzuya, Mogami, Shikuma, and Chokai, and light cruiser, the Noshiro, four destroyers, and a number of other service ships would depart truck on November 3rd. The once-dominant IGN fleet so surely-footed in the early days of the war now was hesitant and indecisive. Nevertheless, Koga would unleash another attack against Empress Augusta Bay. Koga placed the new naval force under Admiral Carita, who would attempt to intercept further American forces en route to Bougainville. On November 4th, Wilkerson would be bringing the 21st Marines aboard 8 destroyer transports and 8 LSTs. 3,548 men, led by Colonel Evans Ames, alongside 5,000 tons of supplies and equipment, escorted by the destroyers Waller, Safley, Philip, Renshaw, Eaton, and Sigourney. Halsey received word of the new Japanese force and realized the situation was critical. If Halsey did not turn back the incoming threat, his forces on Bougainville would not receive their planned reinforcements. Halsey was thus ready to take a huge risk. He was going to send in his carriers. As Halsey would later write, Perhaps the success of the South Pacific War hung on it being stopped. Against conventional wisdom that carriers should not be exposed to land-based aircraft attacks, he ordered Rear Admiral Sherman's task force built around the USS Saratoga and Princeton to face a force possibly of 200 Japanese aircraft. The risks for Halsey were personal as well as professional. I sincerely expected both air groups to be cut to pieces, and both carriers stricken if not lost. I tried not to remember my son Bill was aboard one of them, but we could not let the men at Torokina be wiped out while we stood by and wrung our hands. Halsey's Chief of Staff, Admiral Kearney, recalled that before making the decision to attack with his carriers, his commander, quote, He suddenly looked 150 years old. Sherman's task force, now designated Task Group 50.4, consisted of carriers Saratoga, light carrier Princeton, the destroyers Stack, Sterrett, Wilson, Izzard, Connor, Bell, Shadette, Boyd, Bradford, and Cowell. He would be supported by General Twinning's aerosols in any way possible. Halsey also requested MacArthur allow Kenney's 5th Air Force to join in on the battle. On November the 5th, aided by some very bad weather, a surprise air raid was performed against Rabaul. Sherman's carrier force was 230 miles away from Rabaul, near Cape Torquina, when they began launching aircraft at 9 a.m. The Saratoga launched 16 Avengers and 22 Dauntless. Princeton launched 7 Avengers. The carrier aircraft were escorted by 52 Hellcats, making a formation of 97 aircraft in all. This was their entire payload. The aircraft flew at a low level as they approached Rebel's anti-aircraft defenses at 10.20 a.m. They kept a tight formation, flying right through the flak which prevented the 70 zeros from intercepting them properly. And as we have seen during this series, the Japanese anti-aircraft guns were honestly terrible. Added to this, the American aircraft enjoyed much better armor than their Japanese counterparts, particularly the Zero fighter. Thus, rather hilariously, they were flying through enemy flak to protect themselves from the Zeros because the Zeros could not handle the flak. Commander Henry Cadwell led the bombers towards Blanche Bay, where they would peel off at about 14,500 feet. The Dauntless dive-bombed the targets before them as the Avengers timed their approaches to hit the very same targets at the same time. Within just 30 minutes, the attack absolutely devastated the Japanese plans. Heavy cruiser Maya was trying to leave the harbor during the attack, but took a 500-pound bomb hit near her catapult area, which set off a series of explosions, blowing up her engine rooms and causing heavy casualties. As Maya was left fully disabled, The Mogami managed to clear the harbor, but she took a torpedo hit. Her number one and two turrets were flooded, forcing her crews to scramble to put out the fires. The Otago suffered three very near misses, which damaged her hull, armament, and machinery. The Takio took a bomb hit to her starboard side, damaging her hull and machinery. The Chikuma received only slight damage and was able to depart for truck at 8.38. The Suzuya, which was just preparing for refueling, tried to evade and was only slightly damaged as well. Aside from this, other light cruisers and destroyers did not receive any damage. 70 sailors had been killed aboard the Maya. 23 died aboard the Mogami, Takio, and Otago. Captain George Chandler, a P-38 fighter pilot, described how There were B-24 bombers up high and B-25 bombers attacking right down on the deck, dropping frag bombs on the airplanes along the runways. We did our best work at high altitude, but we also took part in combat 1,000 feet off the ground. Taking full advantage of Halsey's daring attack, General Kenny had sent 27 B-24s and 67 P-38s to bomb the warehouse area on the western side of the harbor. They were challenged by only 15 zeros who would lose 2 in the process. The Japanese facilities were wrecked by the attack. The Americans lost 5 bombers and 5 fighters while taking down 11 zeros. The very cautious Admiral Minichi Koga withdrew his forces back to Truk as a result. The Japanese naval threat to the invasion of Bougainville was all but over. A Japanese naval officer later admitted that they had given up on Bougainville mainly because of quote the serious damage received by several 2nd Fleet cruisers at Rabaul, a carrier attack. The success of the raid on Rabaul left Halsey ecstatic. It is real music to me and opens the stops for a funeral dirge for Tojo's Rabaul. Sherman grabbed all of his returning planes expecting a Japanese counterstrike. A Japanese scout plane discovered Sherman's task force around mid-afternoon kuzaka immediately dispatched 18 torpedo bombers after the americans at around dusk the japanese discovered what they believed to be the task force and attacked although they later claimed a great air victory in reality they hit an lci in a pt boat escorting an lct back from cape torquina a torpedo lodged in the engine room of the lci had killed a single man that was the extent of the damage to the quote-unquote task force in return the japanese lost one plane it was hardly an even exchange and no compensation for all of the havoc wrecked earlier upon the second fleet Halsey yet again showed what a formidable and aggressive commander he could be his gamble paid off greatly the americans had secured their naval superiority in the south pacific and it would remain that way for the rest of the war I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you're still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I'm releasing a podcast I did with Ninton from Flashpoint History on the Doolittle Raid. Also, please do check out my Patreon account over at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. This month's podcast is actually written by a friend of mine about wonky adventures with Churchill. It's going to be fun. Admiral Merrill performed an excellent battle against a larger IGN force. Admiral Halsey lived up to his reputation and performed a bold gamble, and it paid off big time. Now the Americans would dominate the South Pacific for the rest of the Pacific War.